Welcome to the sixth episode of Who's Editing, a thought experiment in which my guest and I appoint ourselves editors of a comic book line at DC Comics. But the joke's on us because we can only use the characters of a specific issue of Who's Who, and in fact, must use them. I'll let you in on all the rules. But first, let's welcome my guest with which to create a line of books based on Who's Who number six. That's the issue that includes 13 pages worth of doctors. So I had to call on the real thing. Dr. Ange, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much. I have loved this show since its inception. I love hearing the creative minds that you've brought on. So I hope I'm going to hold up my end of the bargain. Uh, well, let's hope so. <laughs> the pressure's <laughs> on. No, but really, did you have any real challenges in this issue? Like, I'm not going to lie. For me, looking at it, you know, just on paper, it was the toughest one for me yet. And it's not that I'm getting burnt out. Rather, it's because this issue has a lot of my favorite characters. And they've been oh. reimagined several times. The Demon, Dr. Fate, Dial H for Hero. And I feel like the perfect way to do them has been done <laughs> along the way. So that was one of my challenges. Just sometimes the characters, well, I don't want to change anything. And that was a challenge in itself. What about you? Uh, it's sort of similar. You know, I've been very impressed in hearing some of your prior episodes when people have this huge universe uh, story that is like woven through every one of their books. And I'm sort of like, I just want a good Dr. Midnight book on the show, yeah, right? And so, <laughs> so like one of the things that I did, my strategy was first, let me look at a character. Then let me decide what creative team that if there was an ad saying a book was coming out with this creative team attached to that character, would I say I would have to buy that book? And then go from there. So sort of creative team first and then thought exercise after. Right. But I did want to have some sort of understanding of why the universe is just going to be these 14 or 15 books. So I did come up with uh, origin of my universe, but that's about it. It's just an origin just to explain why there are only these characters. It's not like a chunk of the DCU. It's the entire DCU. Exactly. You know, sometimes it's just uh, there is a challenge as to how diverse the, the cast is in that issue. In this case, there are a lot of women, and I was going to say a lot of characters of color, but to be fair, all the people of color are actually the women in this. <laughs> but compared to some other issues, that was less of a problem for me. Anyway, so one more time, here are the rules. Each episode of Who's Editing will go by. Our line of books must include a monthly series for every hero character or team featured. We can give a villain or other entry their own series if we absolutely feel the need to, but we can only name a single villain from the issue to receive that honor. Imagine we're coming back from some crisis or other so we can reboot characters or use any continuities version. It's up to us. Titles don't have to match the entries. Note that we are each pitching our own ideas, so we'll sort of end up with two possible lines of books. And listeners, you decide which books you want to read from either continuity, either universe, either parallel world. Uh, so tell me, Ange, you said you had an origin story. What was there, your strategy going into this? So the first thing I felt was looking at these characters that many of them like are not broken ideas. DC seems to think they're broken and have to reboot them, but many of them just need like a little bit of sprucing up. And so I wrote my universal origin and then I decided on elevator pitches on all of them. So here's the origin. Time is relative. Decades may seem long to us, but are meaningless when compared to the millennia of the universe. So in the 1930s, Dr. Bedlam, a villain in this issue, is already established on Earth because Darkseid has sensed that this planet has a role to play in the cosmos. 
on his own, Bedlam is conducting experiments trying to pierce the source wall, and he's working in a prestigious scientific university in New England. In the 70s, Demos is in Scataris, trying to pierce the veil between Earth and a mystic dimension of pure power in hopes of flooding himself with magical energies. In the 90s, Dr. Destiny is trying once more to taste the power he once held when he had Morpheus's gem and is using a mix of sorcery and technology to try to tap into the raw energy of the Endless. He is working undercover as a scientist at an academy of high esteem in California. In the present day, Desaad is on Earth trying to rip open time, thinking the mysterious anti-life equation can only be solved by looking back in time to when life was first beginning to manifest in the universe. He's in hiding at LexCorp as Dr. Dominic Saad. And a thousand years in the future, the Dark Circle have broken into the Legion headquarters and are trying to dismantle the miracle machine and rebuild it for their own nefarious purposes. So while those are all years apart to the universe, they basically happen at the same time. All the experiments are successful. It floods the universe with all manners of energy, god waves, mystical powers, dream energies, chronal waves, even miracle power. Because all of that energy ripples out, it changes Earth and the universe. Everything is different. Some things don't happen. Some things happen differently. Some things stay nearly the same. And those who are nearest to this you know, explosion of energy or are more susceptible are affected. So a group of heroes are born, but there are also other oddities that will emerge because of what I am calling the wave. So a new universe has started. So the wave you'll hear in a lot of my pitches, but just as a way to explain how these people got their powers. All right. It's the flashpoint of, of, That's your, right. of your universe. It's the flashes point because it sort of takes place throughout time, all sorts of different stuff. Well, mine, well, it was not to reinvent the wheel. Just make it the best bunch of books I possibly could. There's no link between them. And I often use particular iterations I already loved as a jump point towards what I wanted to do. But one decision I made early on was to have all the books take place now. So no matter where the hero is supposed to be active, it, it doesn't matter. All these books are contemporary with each other and happen in the 2020s, if you like. So with issue six of Who's Who, we have to include a minimum of 14 books in our line and a maximum of 15. And I'm going to hand it off to you first, and we'll do a bit of back and forth in entry order, but we'll keep our bonus villain series if we have one, for the end. So we start with the Daily Planet. Uh, th this counts. Any location counts as an entry we must do. Uh, location, business, uh, you know, as long as it's not a headquarters wouldn't count. But I think the Daily Planet certainly does. It has its own cast. So what did you do with this? It's called The Planet. It is written by Matt Fraction with art by Chris Samney and variant covers by Dan Jurgens. Uh, the elevator pitch for this book is a DC book that is ripped from the headlines. Uh, so this is like a social commentary book with stories commenting on current world events and issues. This isn't necessarily affected by the wave because there are no superpowered beings in this. This is really a book about how everyday people can be as much of a hero as somebody that has superpowers. This is a book that is going to have stories that have an agenda, but not necessarily an agenda that has a story. So it's not like we should write an immigration story, let's have Lois Lane in it. It's we're going to write a Lois Lane story about immigration. I know it's a subtle difference, but if you read the Greg Rucka Lois Lane miniseries, you'd understand what I'm talking about. And then, you know, I might even add a new investigative reporter to the Daily Planet staff a hard-hitting, sometimes literally, sort of like somebody who hits people hard to get uh, information, a new journalist named 
Iron Monroe, uh, a mystery, mm. a, a potential new Superman in this universe we don't know yet. I chose the team that I did because uh, Matt Fraction just showed he could handle Jimmy Olsen in that miniseries. He did such a great job. He's doing Adventure Man, Iron Fist. I think everything he touches is gold. I trust him. Chris Samney will kind of bring a little bit of grit like he did to sort of like the Black Widow series he did with Mark Wade, And then, of course, Jurgens on variant covers to sort of bring a Superman legend into the proceedings. Right. I love it. I mean, it's not it's not too far from my idea, but I like returning Iron Monroe as a sort of a kind of Clark Kent in this holds my interest. I certainly would poach your um, creative team. So mine is the same. I think think of those GCPD type books. I'm a big fan of investigative journalism stories like All the President's Men or Spotlight. Uh, you could put Aaron Sorkin's Newsroom or even Sports Night in there. So this is like that, but in the shadow of events in the DCU. So it's not so much the real world. It's more like Astro City in a way, you know? You can tell it's the DC universe rather than our real world. And it's in particular probably in the shadow of the Superman books. The main cast consists of Lois, uh, Jimmy, and Perry. I've got Ron Troop. I've got Cat Grant, Steve Lombard. And I've got Clark Kent too, but we're never in his head. And we all sort of act like he and Superman are completely different people. So I want real newspaper nitty-gritty. I want ethical dilemmas. I want real-world stories uh, that feel personal and intimate. I want the staff to take down Luthor. I want reporters uncovering extra details about events happening in other books. I want Perry White to be holding stockholders and editorial interference at bay. Every issue includes also some article from the paper, like Back Matter or something, but it doesn't have to be the hard-hitting stuff. It can be comic strips and lifestyle pages. But I do think a reporter's life can be just as interesting and action-filled as a police detective's in Gotham. So I think this series has legs. And it's also a good place to talk about real issues, yes. Both in terms of what's in the paper, and also I think we're particularly interested in the way things are reported, the ethics of journalism. That would be an important component of the series. So we're very close, but I would have been surprised if Daily Planet hadn't been this. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to Dart. Like, no Atari Force future for me. So, Dart, I'm putting her in the contemporary DC universe, where she acts as a badass mercenary trained by the British services, but gone rogue after her precognitive powers made her see a betrayal around the corner. She couldn't save Blackjack, her partner, but the series will eventually bring him back. He faked his own death, of course. So, think of a Black Widow-type comic, as drawn by Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, <laughs> in which... Dart is self-motivated. Instead of getting missions from some superior or even from someone who would pay for her services, she gets visions of bad things happening and means to fix them. Globetrotting, techno, super spy kind of stuff. John Ostrander might still be interested in this kind of material. He probably might be my first call for the writing half of this. But that's my take on Dart. So mine is Dart. Uh, it takes place in the present. Writer Ed Brubaker, artist Joel Jones, with variant covers by Frank Cho. Uh, the elevator pitch is uh, Catwoman meets James Bond. So her origin here is sort of similar um, to the original. She's an intergalactic mercenary. She's trained in electronics and martial arts. She can even be an assassin when she feels it's necessary. But in this universe, Atari Force loses, and she basically has to be on the run. She's considered a war criminal by the fascist government that has won that war. And having nowhere else to go, she heads to Earth in hopes of hiding from her pursuers, she also has information that Desaad is there, and she knows there's a huge bounty on Desaad's head, and she thinks that might set her up for life. Of course, as she approaches 
the wave hits, she gets her precog powers based upon that. And by the time she arrives to land on Earth, Dasad is gone. But she figures she's already on Earth. Why not stick around and basically hide on Earth um, and have some fun while she's doing it? So she joins Checkmate. She works as a secret agent where she totally excels. But she has in her contract that for every day that she is on a mission, she gets that equivalent number of days off to do whatever she wants. And when she's on a rough time, she like loves the finer things in life. She'll steal beautiful things if she wants. She has a sensual side of her life. She's really just having fun on Earth. But she also has this sort of like spy work that happens every so often. So she kind of works both sides of the laws on her own whim. She's smart. She's strong. She's dead sexy. She's deadly. So Brubaker would be perfect for this. You know, he wrote Catwoman. He wrote Sleeper. He writes Criminal. All that makes sense. Joelle Jones just brings beautiful art and an elegance to her art that would work for like the Bond settings. And then, of course, Frank Cho as variants is like a no-brainer for this type of book. I mean, she has a very, very strong look and concept. That's what I meant when I was saying that a lot of these characters, I don't want to change. So I felt like my pitches would be a bit lackluster in a way. So, And the reason is, they're so cool already, so many of them. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. So what about Dawnstar? One of my favorites from my early Legion reading, and I started reading when her and Wildfire were in the middle of a... Well, they were always in, sort of in the middle of something. What would you do with her? It takes place in the future. It'll be called Dawnstar. The creative team is Sterling Gates as writer, Emmanuel Lupicino um, as artist, and variant covers by Steve Lytle. And the elevator pitch is like the prisoner meets the old cross-gen book Sojourn. So she's still in the 31st century. She's still a born tracker. She's still skilled in martial arts. She's still brave. She works as a tracker in this universe, either like a bounty hunter or finding people who are lost or on the run or finding rare antiquities that people want to acquire. And she gets paid extremely well for these services. But in this new universe, there's no legion. Ah. Somehow, Dawnstar is so connected to the universe that she still vaguely feels that something is like just outside of her memory. There's like some remnant, there's some vague understanding, you know, maybe she never even says the word legion, but she's like, something isn't right. And, you know, she finds lost things, but now she herself is lost. She's sort of like, something isn't right. And so between her activities, she keeps searching for some clues of her own origin to try to see like where the universe has gone wrong. Since her missions can vary, right, sometimes she's a bounty hunter, sometimes she's just looking for something, this would be a very interesting book with varied stories. It could be a crime book, it could be a soap opera, it could be a feel-good story, it could be an Indiana Jones story. I think Sterling Gates is, like, woefully underused. He's one of my favorites. He writes young heroes very, very well. I think Emmanuel Lupicino brings beautiful art. He did the Starfire book for a while. And obviously, Steve Lytle is a Legion legend. So she is a finder of lost things, but thinks she's lost something that she herself is looking for. Still winged? Still winged. Basically, the look's the same. Well, this is another character that I bring to the present day. I let go of the Legion roots in this case. I'm making her a young native heroine with mystical origins. Spirits of her ancestors are basically the tracking sense. They're leading her to handing out justice for her people. And the wings would just manifest kind of spiritually. You know, there's a transformation happening. So, in other words, she can lead a normal life as well. It doesn't have to be... I think, like, these uh, winged heroes have sort of... There's always... There's a history of them being kind of bulky and not fitting in doorways, and you're wondering how the, you know, how the X-Men's angel can fit his wings under a suit and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm fixing that. 
they fixed it in the Hawkman series, the current Hawkman series as well. There's like, they're collapsible. They, can, they go into a backpack. In this case, it's like they're magical and they appear when she transforms into Dawnstar, more or less. But in terms of personality, I want her to be uh, empathetic and not all that cut out to be this kind of Avenger that she's been chosen to become. So there's a conflict between how she wants to handle situations, which would be more like Rucka-esque Wonder Woman, you know, it's like mm. the person who brings in the, the, the olive branch. There's that, and then there's the spirits guiding her, and they're more ruthless. So I want that conflict. And I'm putting this in the hands of an actual native creative team. I quite like the art samples I've seen of Christina Badhand. Actually, they've practically inspired the take here. So I'd let her redesign the character in a culturally relevant manner. And she might even like to plot or write it. But the, the idea would be that like this young heroine coming into her own, coming from a native background and having this inner conflict. That's my Dawn Star. I like that. <laughs> it's not bad. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Now, here's one of my favorites. Dead Man. Tough. Because the original concept was extremely strong. But it was just one story. You know, when it ended, there was nowhere for the character to go. Uh, and some of the revivals are actually rather clunky. I don't know if you've ever read the like Kirby's take in Forever People. Have you seen that? No. Oh, he gives him like a robot body. Anyway, <laughs> an image kept coming back to me. And it was Mike Allred's take on the character during Flashpoint. And I really liked his look under Allred's pen. I guess Mike Allred is good at drawing people with like white heads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because he's done Silver Surfer, of course, Madman. So the Allreds are doing this book. Totally. Uh, which means it's going to be charming. It's going to be weird and capable of going pretty much anywhere. They're maybe the only ones who might make me care about Ramakushna at this point. <laughs> but it's not even about that. I still want to give them a premise. So it's this. I want them to be able to draw the circus, just like in that Flashpoint, and have fun creating strange characters in that context. So Boston Brand works at a circus, and he has a supporting cast of circus folks. But here's the thing. They're all dead. They're all ghosts. This is a ghost circus that moves around, haunts different places, and some people can see it and others can't. And Dead Man is the only member of the circus who can escape and deal with things in the outside world, in town. But he always gets pulled back when the circus moves out of town. It's kind of going to be like a mystery, horror, well, horror, I guess, supernatural. I'm not going to call it horror, but supernatural, kind of creepy, weird. Ultimately, with the All Reds in charge... It's mostly going to be charming and fun. Yeah, I, I mean, I loved uh, that Silver Surfer book. So I think that's a great choice. This was one of the hardest ones for me. And part of it is because, and I'm ready to face the slings and arrows. Um, I've never really liked dead man stories. I have a hard time with them. And so it wasn't easy for me to just say like, oh, we should just keep doing what we're doing with him. So I have a dead man book that is written by Tom King with art by uh, Ivan Rice and variant covers by Rich Gerard. Elevator Pitch is really any Tom King book meets Quantum Leap. And the story is Boston Brand is not in the circus. He's a soldier. He's an expert marksman. And he has basically survived so many tours of duties and so many battles that he has been nicknamed Dead Man by other soldiers who feel that he should have died a hundred times over. But even his time comes, he is severely injured in battle. He is um, dying at... The exact time the wave hits is when he dies, and his soul is just leaving his body as the wave hits. So as a result, 
his soul is kind of caught in the wake of that energy. And so he survives in this incorporeal way, in a similar way to the way the original dead man did. But now he's military. He can still enter living beings, but he can only enter living beings when they are also teetering on the edge of life or death for some violent manner. So he was dying in violence. He can only enter beings that are dying from something violent. And sometimes he can use his powers and his presence to help them pull through. But sometimes the person that he enters dies. And if the body he enters ends up surviving, he then feels that he needs to avenge the crime that injured them uh, using all of his skills to bring about justice. But in other stories, when he does that, the shell that he helped live will get killed in his war on vengeance. And so he sort of leads the very person that he saved to their death somewhere else. So it's a very Tom King book that's going to be dark. There's going to be a lot of PTSD. There's going to be a lot of obsession and a lot of like, you know, what is right, what is wrong. But I thought Ivan Rice would be interesting because he has sort of a Neil Adams look to the whole thing. And I think that that Mm -hmm. would sort of harken back to the classics. And of course, King and Gerard work together so much, he's like a natural to put on some cover duty. Like I said, Dead Man has just that that one story. Once he finds who his killer is, we're done. Yeah. So uh, we had to reinvent. We had to go somewhere else with it, I think. Because every time they've, they've tried to say, well, there was another killer or the League of Assassins or wrapping him into that Nanda Parbat kind of stuff. It's like now we've lost our way. It's like the it was such a beautiful little series. Once it's over, well, it's, it's totally over. He should have gone to his rest. <laughs> I will tell you, as editor, if anybody turns in a script where he is looking at the sky, shaking his fist and yelling Ramakrishna, I will rip the script up. I cannot see that scene one more time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, well, The Demon is next. So th- this is another one of my favorites. Very tough to, to reimagine for me. What about you? Very, very tough to reimagine. He is one of my favorites. I have like the entire run of the original Kirby series. I like love it to death. And so I was trying to come up with uh, a new wrinkle. And so this is going to be written and drawn by Matt Wagner with variant covers by Mike Mignola. And the elevator pitch is like Mage meets Freaky Friday. So Jason Blood is a preacher. He's a professor of the arcane at a prestigious university. He's translating ancient tomes about demons in Arthurian time. He actually says the classic incarnation for Etrigan just when this wave of energy hits. And as a result, it merges Jason Blood and Etrigan much in the way they are now. And much in the way things go now, Blood will call on the demon form when he needs help with mystical threats on Earth you know, anything that he encounters, and he'll use the classic, you know, gone, gone, the form of man. I think that works too well to get rid of. But the other half of this book is now, you know, there's always this whole thing about like, Jason Blood uh, is acting more and more like Etrigan on Earth. And so now I kind of flip it that you're going to get stories where like Etrigan is acting more and more like Jason Blood in hell. So Etrigan will you know, see all of the chaos and politics in like the mystical realm that includes hell. And he kind of wants to like consolidate power and straighten things up. And, you know, he sees the endless and all of these other like magical beings and, and he hates posers like Neron and Lord Satanus. And he really just wants some order. There's this now piece of blood in him that wants to clean this whole mess up. And when he needs extra help from Jason Blood, he has his own incarnation spell. Like, when in hell there's a need for good, gone Etrigan, and here be blood. And then 
Jason Blood will be there, and Jason Blood can use his religious rhetoric and things like that to try to consolidate power to make hell a little bit more politics and war. And you'll sort of alternate arcs. So there'll be an arc on Earth where it's more the demon on Earth, and there'll be arcs in hell, sort of like Simonson did with Thor, where a lot of it uh, happened in Asgard. You know, Matt Wagner wrote the demon. He's handled mortals acting in higher realms in things like Mage and Madame Xanadu. And I think if you ever got Mike Mignola to do variant covers in DC, like that would be an automatic sellout. <laughs> and we can dream. Yes. So there, there's no there's no problem there. Uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of the demon as well. I like your take. I think he's been done right already. Is was probably my problem more than once. Even if we go back to the original, of course. But I think that the Alan Grant Val Simics series probably the gold standard for me since it did supernatural stories and used both Jason Blood and his cast. And let Etrigan have his own life in hell, taking down the Dukes and stuff, which harks a little bit to what you're you're doing with yours. Uh, it was fun. It was crazy. And when the series fell to Garth Ennis and John McRae, um, they made it even more, you know, subversive and insolent. Even Paul Cornell's Demon Knights was a really cool idea for a reimagining of the series. So I was like, oh. The other ones I don't really care about. But where does that leave me? Basically, I'm going to go back to that old take, uh, which was the Grant Semix one, uh, but a different creative team. I, I haven't actually decided on who, but people who, had, who would have something new to say. I, I, you know, you can't just repeat a run. But it's like Judge Dredd type humor, uh, but he's in a supernatural world. And I also want to play more with the idea that Jason Blood, he's been around for centuries, so we can tell occasional stories that take place in another period, which hopefully connects to events that are current, because I love that conceit in Immortal Iron Fist and more recently in Hawkman. Etrigan's a real bastard with a dark sense of humor, and his world is insane because he was originally de devised by Jack Kirby. So uh, I want this to be a book where every month you say, I can't believe they did that. You know, it has to be sort <laughs> of, it's an anti-hero book, you know, so it's got to be a little like... Oh my God, I can't believe they went there, that the demon did that, or that even Jason Blood did something. But we're pretty close on, on some of these, and this is one of those. Demonia was next. And because Demonia eventually betrayed the Omega Men, we could have left her out. We talked about it. But she did seem to start out as a hero, so we kept her in. And yet, I don't care about the Omega Men, so I've decided to tie her into the demon book instead. The relationship might be something like Deadpool and Gwenpool or something, or Lady Deadpool. There's a number of Deadpool characters. So a book with a similar tone, but female-led. This is basically, I guess, made for Gail Simone. Uh, Demonia was put inside a human host by the rulers of hell to stop Etrigan from screwing around. But when she got there, she found it was more fun to do exactly what Etrigan was doing and started to screw around too. We still keep something like her trademark look, from the Huzu issue, and her version of Jason Blood, her host, whoever that may be, doesn't go to hell when she's in our world. There's no switch. They share a body, and the host is horrified at what she gets up to. She you know, acts as a conscience that infuriates demonia, etc. We've had books about how males would misbehave if there were no limits. The demon, Lobo, Guy Gardner even. But this is a female take. Maybe a Harley Quinn in a way, but you know, without that baggage. What would that be like? As a wink to the Omega Men, who surely do not exist in this idealized version of the DCU. <laughs> Demons sent to look for her in our world would be based on those characters. So the Omega Men were basically are the, the hordes of hell. They would look like Brute and Tigor or whoever. 
amazing. Did you have a deep-seated love for Demonia that I don't know about, or um, did you go wild on this? I went a little bit wild. I'll tell you that it's a good thing that you told me you were including her because I had not included her. And so um, it took me a little bit of while to wrap my head around it. Like you, Omega Men is nowhere near this book. Uh, this is an idealized DC universe run by me. So this is um, written by Kelly Thompson, art by Carmen Carnero, variant covers by Jenny Frisson. The elevator pitch is like Spawn meets She-Hulk. So she is born from the primordial soup of Dinosaur Island. So we'll hear a little bit more about that later. But she's a unique being for there because it's so bizarre a place that she was born of that stuff of life when the wave hits and she has elements of all of the life there. So she is both human and reptilian and she can transform. So she's a human female, but she can also become like a snake woman, the sort of classic demonia look that we see a reptilian humanoid. And then she also can transform even farther and become sort of a dragon like creature the way she could in the Omega men. And of course, when she's in those reptilian forms, she has some enhanced powers of like strength, endurance and speed. Obviously, if she's a dragon, she has the power of a dragon, but she's not trapped on Dinosaur Island like everybody else. She actually is able to use her dragon form to escape the savagery of that land. She ends up in the U.S. where she turns into this human form and she's sort of like a stranger in a strange land. You know, she's sort of learning about this new world. She's living as a human and she's kind of loving the humanity of the place and she will defend it when she has to because she really loves her new life. The problem is that whenever she transforms into a reptilian form, it takes her longer and longer to return to human. And when she returns to human, she finds it longer and longer to kind of quell the baser, more animalistic feelings that she had in those forms. So she feels she's always just a thread away from becoming evil or animalistic. Again, a nod to her original story. She always has to question, like, is she going to use those forms uh, to defend this place, knowing that it may stop her from living the life that she wants? You know, there's like a little bit of responsibility here and self-sacrifice. And and I think that the creative team that I picked, like Kelly Thompson has written, you know, Captain Marvel and, and people like that, people struggling to do the right thing. You know, this is actually a book that, you know, when I came up with this idea, I actually was like, boy, I'd probably read that book. <laughs> Well, it's important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lizard by night. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like, boy, you know, it's like a purse robber. Do I become a snake woman to stop this, like, mugger, you know, uh, knowing that it might harm me? Or do I save my powers for a bigger threat, knowing that that mugger could then kill somebody's Uncle Ben, you know? So she kind of struggles with these ideas. It's like a white wolf RPG come to life. So <laughs> I kind of wish that I, I thought of the connection with Dinosaur Island, but... I really do write these things like all in one go from page one to page 32. Mm. So Dinosaur Island is only later and maybe I and I didn't, I didn't go further. <laughs> But then it was it would have screwed up what I did with Dinosaur Island, obviously. Earlier, you mentioned The Endless with the backstory with Dr. Destiny. Yes. And speaking of Dr. Destiny, well, what about straight up Destiny? He's in this issue of Who's Who. He gets a half page. So The Endless do exist. Or is this a different destiny? No, this is a different destiny. This is kind of like the destiny that is the narrator of Secrets of the Haunted House. So there's no connection really to the Endless. To the endless. He really is like a narrator uh, in this book. Writer Mark Wade with rotating artists and uh, George Perez on covers, if I can talk him out of retirement. The elevator pitch is basically like, What if, what if was a DC book um, okay. uh, is this? And so the book's title is what was blanks destiny. And what it does is it leans into the last universe, the last continuity as a way for DC to keep trademarks up 
and a way to kind of keep a foot in the door should my universe suck and be canceled. Like, you know, there'll still be these stories out there of these characters to keep people uh, remembering them. And so Destiny will open up every story. And what he'll say is that other DC universe ended suddenly. What was like Superman's last story? And then Mark Wade will write like the last Superman story. And then, you know, after a while, he'll do like, what was the last Batman story? You know, what was Batman's destiny? That's going to be how this runs. And there'll be two stories per issue, a main story and a backup. And major DC characters like Superman or Batman or Wonder Woman or Flash, they'll have six issue arcs in the main story that can get together in a trade. You know, what was Superman's destiny? But then the backup story will be minor characters, but they'll only be two issue stories like you don't need six issues like what happened to death bolt right you know you can tell his story <laughs> in, in two stories right and uh, or in two backup features kind of like a whatever happened to but again as a way to keep all of these other characters in the minds of people and to keep all of those trademarks up and you know mark wade is such a historian on dc comics he could be perfect to write these like i'm sure that he has a last superman story in him and probably the good thing about this is that you know I know that I've read a million last Superman stories. If this universe keeps going, you know, year five, it might be, well, that was one possible destiny for Superman. Let's write another. You know, you can sort of re-churn these. And that's what Destiny does is he's kind of like the watcher. You know, he kind of like opens and closes these books. What if meets uh, Armageddon 2001? Exactly, exactly. That's a great way to think about it. What I thought you were going to say when I said, okay, so he's not the endless, he's... I thought you were going to say, oh, he's the Joe Simon, Jack Kirby, you know, version. There's a version of Sandman that is the Simon Kirby creation was more like Kitty Fair in a way. Mm. That's what I'm doing with Destiny. I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's what's happening. Uh, Because what if a kid found the Book of Destiny and it chained itself to him? The Book of Destiny is the, the title. And this young boy, who I imagine being of Middle Eastern descent, possibly the child of a Syrian refugee, uh, he basically discovers the power of stories. Because the book translates the real world into a story, which the boy, let's call him Kadar, which means something like destiny, can edit to manipulate reality. Or by turning the pages, move things forward or backward. Or like Kid Eternity, he can bring heroes to life to help him. Uh, and when he's in trouble, he can just, you know, swing the volume on his chain, hit the bad guy in the face if he wants. But this isn't really a violent book. It's meant to be a charming, all-ages story. It's full of fantasy and mystery, weirdness, whimsy. You know, I, I want this to be, like when I say a boy, I don't mean you know, a 16-year-old. I mean a, a 12-year-old. I want it to be about how stories give us power. So that's the metaphor behind it. And when you're a kid and you're devouring every book, I mean, I was that kind of kid. The person who takes refuge in stories and then the Book of Destiny sort of attracted to him for that reason. Hmm. I like the, um, again, I brought very little diversity to my books because I kind of stayed with the classic feel, but I like the background of the character because, of course, it, it you know, there's sort of that, you know, Thousand One Arabian Nights kind of a feel yeah. that kind of uh, makes it interesting. And um, like you, as a kid that, you know, anything you put in front of me, I'm going to read, it probably would be, you know, quite charming for old people like me who kind of want to recapture some of that that magic that 
page, that's just like a half page, because he was just at that time, Destiny was just a horror host, and that's how you use them. Yeah. But the bottom half of the page is Detective Chimp. Now, here's a classic. I mean, there's the original take, which is a somewhat silly take on Lassie or Flipper or Skippy, that kind of thing, where, the, you know, the animal who sort of helps fight crime. or And then there's the talking ape from Shadow Pact. But mine is a comedy series in the style of something like Unbeatable Squirrel Girl in terms of you know, arc and sort of jokes. I think the crazier stuff in the entry has got to stay. Like him being able to talk to other animals, making monkeys out of criminals, that phrase. So I imagine this in the cartoony style. People don't understand what he's saying. It's all ook, ook and stuff. And he acts like a chimp for all intents and purposes. But to the animal kingdom, he's Sherlock Holmes solving crimes and mysteries that affect animals in the entry says Florida. That's great. Uh, so I'm guessing <laughs> the alligators get racially profiled all the time. You know, it's it's like, let's blame the alligator. <laughs> but Detective Chimp is on the case. The cops kind of stumble around uh, as he leads them to clues. Uh, Sheriff Edward Chase from the entry would not be necessarily a friend, but kind of the Inspector Lestrade of the book. Multiple cases per issue if need be. You know, they can be like short gag strips. Plenty of background gags anyway. A good place for other famous animals of the DCU to show up. I've tagged Chris Eliopoulos on this. He might be able to be doing both the, the writing and the art. He wrote Pet Avengers. And he wrote and drew those cute Franklin Richards strips. So he seems well suited to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love his art. I have a commission of his. Oh. So that's great. A Supergirl? Yeah, a Supergirl. Mm. It's funny that you made yours kind of like the comedy because this is the weird book in my universe written by Grant Morrison with art by Tom Grummet and variant covers by Arthur Adams. The elevator pitch is basically like Doom Patrol meets Howard the Duck meets Lancelot Link. So he's a chimp. He's being experimented on at LexCorp. They're looking to create a drug that will enhance intelligence. They're injecting this drug into him. The wave hits. He gains extreme intelligence. This is the talking chimp that we see now in Shadow Pact. And he is able to figure out that the cause of his hyperintelligence is because of this wave of energy that hit. And he knows that if he was affected, others were affected as well, maybe even some unsavory types. And he realizes he kind of needs to track down these art quirks um, that have made their way to the world to make sure that this new universe is safe. And so he becomes a detective to sort of like seek these things out. But he also has to deal with the fact that he's a talking chimp and humans have a hard time dealing with him and he doesn't like to wear clothes, although I'll have him wear the deer hunter cap. You know, this is Morrison. He can open up his imagination and bring us anything that he wants as a wave anomaly. Think Detective Chimp going up against the men from nowhere or Red Jack or the Candlemaker, that kind of bizarre stuff that has sort of seeped through. So I think the weirder, the better Morrison works. Grummet has that sort of like cute cartoony feel that I think would work. And I chose Arthur Adams for variants because he really just draws great monkeys. I don't know if you've ever seen him draw monkeys, but you can't have people that can't draw monkeys on the covers. So he's done a lot of ape work. Yes. I love it. I love it. Well, I mean, uh, I'll read anything Grant Morrison has written. I'm on record as saying that, although I've been having trouble with his Green Lantern, I have to say. Yes, I will admit the same thing. I kind of read those Green Lanterns and I'm like, usually I can ride the Morrison wave, as it were, um, and I'm kind of lost. Uh, so. so your wave is your wave isn't the Morrison wave. Yeah. No, it's <laughs> you, not the Morrison wave. You haven't gone that far. <laughs> yeah, I, mostly my problems are with the art. So anyway, that's besides the point. Next up is Dial H for Hero. So what Supergirl is to you, 
Dial H is to me. So be careful with this one. That's my baby. Okay. This was, in all honesty, the hardest book for me to crack. Really? It was like two days ago I was still saying, what the heck am I going to do? So I did break it down the way that I normally had. I said, I want Tom Taylor to write this. I want Joe Eisma to draw it. I want Joe Canonis to do covers, but I have real no elevator pitch for this. Nothing. There was no spark that hit me about what this book should be. So instead, what it is, is that there'll be a group of teens on a high school field trip in a museum of the Hall of Heroes. When this wave hits, it bathes them all in its energy. And then that group in the Hall of Heroes will have the usual like breakdown of high school student stereotypes right so they'll be like the nerd they'll be the jock they'll be like the obnoxious rich person they'll be like the quirky girl they'll be all of those type of tropes but this is an age of cell phones and so what ends up happening is that they will receive a text that says hero so they don't know who's sending them this text but when they get this text they are given a random superpower And they get to keep that power until they do something heroic. So they have to become a hero and then the power leaves them. And so as a result, you get to kind of work your way through the motivations of some of these characters. You know, some bad kids might want to use their new superpower for their own gain, right? I have super speed. Let me become a track star, not become a hero and thwart a crime. And some good kids might get like powers where they become like disfigured, right? And like my favorite real dial H hero is like jelly girl who becomes jelly, you know? So, and then are they going to feel magnanimous still if they've been cursed with the power and how do they achieve their heroic goal to like get rid of what is this curse? So you can explore motivation and growth and responsibility and greed and those sort of things. But throughout this, there is a mystery of, who is texting them because they don't know where this word hero is coming from and how does it all work? And I haven't solved that part of the book yet, um, but (laughs) that is definitely um, the mystery that's running through this. You know, Taylor wrote All New Wolverine, which was a look at somebody with legacy and power and trying to figure out their place in the world. Joe Eisman drew Morning Glories set in a high school. Uh, Canonis did the recent book. So I think that's a good creative team to kind of capture this. Well, you said you didn't, you didn't have the answers, but I immediately did because, you know, the, the latest series had the answers in a way that whatever you do with it, those answers are still true. So I know where the texts are coming from and where the power is coming from. I understand all of that. So th- this one was even worse for me than the demon because I've read every possible iteration of the property. I've even gone out of my way to, to read comics where a dial is just on the shelf somewhere as an easter egg okay <laughs> this is my prime collect you know i need every story that has this in it collection so i know what works by now i think and i'm combining a couple of ideas uh, with all due respect to china Mieville, who is one of my favorite authors and his new 52 version i loved 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 Sam Humphreys and joe quinones on dial h for hero and i'd love to get them back on the series Uh, Miguel Montez and Summer Pickens were great characters in that. But the thing that run and the Mieville run had in common was that eventually there were a number of dials in the book, not just the H one. So I'm cutting to the chase and making this a team book. Just Miguel and Summer are certainly in it. Uh, Robbie uh, Reed as the operator stays kind of in the background. Uh, We can have Chris and Vicky or new characters in there as well. And everyone has a different dial. Some make you the hero you were always meant to be. Some get you a cool vehicle, an awesome weapon. Some turn you into an existing DC hero because it happened in the, you know, sometimes somebody would turn into Plastic Man for some reason. (laughs) Whatever we want, really. 
And then there's the one owned by a new non-binary character who can turn into a male or a female hero. And that's important because I'm bringing back the idea of reader submissions from the, you know, the adventure comics days. I know it's kind of verboten these days because DC wouldn't want to get into rights issues and readers wouldn't want to give away potential cash cows. Here's my deal. When you submit a hero, it remains yours. It is yours in perpetuity, even if we use it. You do not get compensated, but you do get credited, and the character can only be used anyway in a Dial H for Hero book. So which that allows for callbacks and flashbacks. And that's it. The day it becomes the next Savage Dragon at some other company, that's the day we applaud you for your success. Mm-hmm. So I'm a very ethical editor. That is the deal. So I don't know how many entries you would get, but uh, I, I thought there was a real thrill to seeing people's submissions in those comics. I want to have an element of that back. If only for that one character, that one dial, that one more random dial in the series. So I've combined ideas. I'll tell you, um, I loved that Humphreys Canonis run like that. I thought it was brilliant. Not only the characters that they came in, but of course all of the different art styles. And there was that one book that I think you like read backwards and then forwards yeah. to sort of understand everything. And the concept of multiple dials is, is really fascinating. And and like you, I also remember the days when people submitted new costumes for Supergirl, right? Like I've read those issues, sure. like this costume designed by so-and-so. And so I almost feel like I would love to submit a character, you know, now. So I love the fact that that is brought back into this because I do think you have to engage people these days. And so why not have it like my character was in a book and I still own it. And I mean, for little kids... You don't think about rights issues anyways. Yeah. And for like old dogs like us, we already know we're never going to work in the comics industry. <laughs> exactly. It's our last chance to have a creation on there, you know? So yeah, I really wanted to have that back, but not really hinge everything on it because it, it did lead to some clunky storytelling, you know, as you had to fit these things in. So uh, next up is Dinosaur Island. We said we'd cover it. Obviously the IP, the war that time forgot, but... I think the kids would be more into a book outright called Dinosaur Island. I, that feels cooler. What I'm doing with it is Swiss Family Robinson with dinosaurs, shipwreck family. I'm really thinking of them as overachievers, like in the, the Robinson family in the new Lost in Space series. The boat was captained by an ex-military officer. I want to call him Rick Flag, But he's the Don West figure. Now they're stuck there. And there's all sorts of shenanigans from straight-up survival to the Will Robinson stand-in befriending a cute dinosaur to a race of evolved dino men being discovered to supervillains who crashed the place. Uh, you know, to get an army of monsters. Regardless, Gilligan's Island Syndrome is strong. It always keeps them on the island. And I think we can play with the history of the place. They find artifacts from other visits from World War II or from before that. And those can be expanded into untold tales of Dinosaur Island. So I personally love dinosaur comics. Uh, I love it when there's no people at all. So here I might try to lure Ricardo Delgado of Age of Reptiles to draw or even write the comic if he cares to do people. You know, somebody who's done the research. So him, Steve Bissett, you know, they've done dinosaur comics that are extremely well-researched and gorgeous to look at. I would go for those kinds of artists. It's funny because I think that the people being trapped on the island is such a core piece of the concept that 
It's something that I kept in my version as well. I also named mine Dinosaur Island with the creative team of uh, Brian Clevenger and Scott Wegner with variant covers by Mike Allred. In this book, the military and Star Labs discover a primitive island that has a vast lake in the middle that is like primordial soup. This is a place where you can watch life form, you know, whether that be new species or not. So this group of uh, military men and scientists are left on the island. The ships that drop them off leave. You know, it's like the prime directive. The less there can be interference with what is going to happen naturally, the better. So they don't want, you know, they want it to be a small crew that's just really there to observe. But of course, the wave hits. The island becomes sort of hidden from the outside world. Nobody knows it exists anymore. And that primordial soup becomes exceedingly active. So spinning out of it is all manners of life. So not only dinosaurs, but also things like mammoths and saber-toothed tigers and also primitive man of all stages of primitive man. And because of the chronal wave aspect of this, some of these have already formed tribes and cultures. And so now the army and the scientists are there there to continue to sort of study what's happening there and explore. But they often have to defend themselves against what can be the threats there. And they just keep hoping that they're going to get picked up. This was a mission where they were dropped off and then they keep hoping that the ship is going to come back and get them. But of course, now because everything has changed, nobody knows they're there. And so they're kind of stuck and they can't really sail off because much like every mysterious island, surrounded by maelstroms and storms that make things like building a raft impossible. Clevenger and Wegner did Atomic Robo, which basically was like mad science and dinosaurs. So I think they would be perfect for this. Great team. Here's the big guy. Dr. Fate, he is the big hero of this issue, I think. Mm-hmm. And on the network, we heard about Dr. Fate pretty recently on the Secret Origins Redux. And uh, the guys there were talking about Dr. Fate as a character and Kent Nelson as a character and what was great about it, but also what seemed to fail t- to really pick up. How do you turn Dr. Fate into someone worthy of holding his own series. Uh, So it's interesting. I felt like I needed to have a team-up book on the shelves. Okay. And so this book is going to be called Law and Order, with Dr. Fate being the order side of this. And he is the forever guest, sort of like Superman was in DC Comics Presents. This is going to be written by Brian Michael Bendis. It'll have art by Doc Shaner. And it's really a mystery book. So, you know, Dr. Fate, he's the Superman of the universe. He's the most powerful sorcerer on the planet. He fights major threats that attack Earth, but also major threats in the mystical realm. You know, Kent Nelson was an Egyptologist, archaeologist, studying the helmet of fate. When the wave hits, it unleashes the entity of Naboo from within the helmet. And so when Nelson dons the helmet, he becomes Dr. Fate, a lord of order. But when he takes the helmet off, he's Kent Nelson. You know, he's kind of like uh, bring him back alive kind of a, a hero in his own way. And so this is going to be a book where there will always be a mystery. At times, what it's going to be is like a mystical threat that is coming to Earth that is like being brought to our dimension by either cults or villains. And so an Earth-based hero, someone like Dr. Midnight or Dr. Occult or even Jason Blood or even Kent Nelson himself has to sort of help manipulate events on Earth so that fate can eventually face the menace that is beyond Earth. But at times there's also going to be sort of a mystical threat in the upper realms that fate must stop, but he needs help with people on Earth. And so he might tell Dr. Occult, I need you to find a symbol for me and bring it to me so that I can that I can help. So it's going to be sort of like sometimes earthly threats, 
sometimes mystical realm threats. Each one has to help the other, whether it's an Earth-based hero helping fate or fate helping the Earth-based hero. Uh, so think of it like the brave and the bold. And it also could be something to showcase new characters, right? So all of the characters that I named that he teams up with are law-abiding, you know, detectives and doctors within this issue. But you maybe this is where a new character is thrown in to see whether or not things catch. And so I think Bendis kind of brings about, he's good at universe building. We've seen that with the Ultimates and things like that. Doc Shaner is wonderful. And I really think Fate needs to have Kent Nelson, much like we heard in that recent Secret Origins. Like, Kent Nelson can't just be like an automaton that houses Naboo. He has to be his own person. And so by sometimes having him be a hero in the Earth side of things, it kind of makes him a more engaging character. Because hmm. I was going to ask, if you only have like 14, 15 heroes or how fast do you run out of characters to team up Dr. Fate with? And then is this where we discover that universe's Batman and Superman eventually? Exactly. You know, think of it like first issue special or showcase, right? Like, oh, well, you know, this wave struck the planet. These are the characters that we know were affected by it, but there have to be people that weren't, you know? And so maybe he stumbles across somebody and it turns out to be a character that sticks. For the time being, it's Limited to the heroes here, I figure like four issue arcs because you kind of always have these two different sides of the law and the order, the earth and the mystic realms that you kind of have to play off of to sort of bring stories to a conclusion. So it's not like one and done. So there'll be some time before you run out of characters. Okay. Well, I have a lot of affection for the character. There have been many great takes. I like, you know, Roy Thomas's half mask fate. I know that's from the Golden Age, but the way Roy Thomas brought it back to J.M. Demetrius' uh, New Age stuff, to Inza as Fate, and various permutations since. Now, the whole Naboo thing is the problem for me. The, the guys on Secret Origins, I had already written this, this take when I listened to the Secret Origins, but they sort of mentioned that when you're lobotomized by Naboo, when your character is actually Naboo, and uh, it makes Fate a more distant character. And the story's already at a remove, because powerful magic sometimes so unlimited that readers have a hard time like grasping it. What are the stakes? What can happen? Is there our hero in danger? And you can't really tell because you don't know the parameters of the powers. So in the modern era, they haven't even really done anything interesting with Kent Nelson himself. You know, Dr. Fate's the helmet. He's some artifact that anybody can wear and then they turn into a Lord of Order. That is not very engaging on a... Like you, I wanted to bring back Kent Nelson. So to put that focus on him in the opening issues, he has to go inside himself and defeat Naboo, who is really like an elder god. So he's bad news. And from then on, Dr. Fate can actually be Kent Nelson. No Lords of Order bull. It's Kent Nelson wielding these powers. A Superman-level magical superhero, but without Naboo in his head. So he's a little out of his depth sometimes. He doesn't always have the right spell ready. He often resorts to punching stuff. He's more physical. The Tower of Fate is full of secrets that are trying to do him in. In terms of opponents, I want to bring back all the crazy stuff from the Golden Age. Those stories were insane. Just reinterpreted for the modern audience. So weirdness like you might find in a young animal book, but Fate is more Cliff Steel or Animal Man than he is Batman or the Chief. He, he's gonna go, Whoa, what the hell? He, you know, it's, he's <laughs> His life is out of control. It's a roller coaster of strangeness and it never stops. You know, I want him to be really dizzy from the things that are happening and not believing it himself. That should generate more personality for 
that core character. I like because he did, you know, back in the Golden Age, have that period of time where he was, again, half-helmeted and doing a lot more punching. So I think it kind of does nicely bring in all of the of the elements of his long history. So that's pretty cool. Still keeping that look. It's a super strong look. But yeah, but yeah it, it feels like the char- there's something about the character that's just a little standoffish, more than just a little standoffish. Yeah, so yeah. I wanted to be, I marvelized them is what I did. I, I admit it. Next up is Dr. Light 2. In my universe, the other Dr. Light never existed, which is a great thing. <laughs> Kimiyohoshi <laughs> is the first with that name and and the first to have that overall look. So she doesn't need you know, like that lame yellow costume that they gave her later, sort of this, maybe to differentiate her from the original guy. She can be in the black and white. I picked up on two things from the entry. One is that she's divorced, which isn't something you see a lot of with superheroes. She even has two kids. So we can do the single mother thing and explore how hard it is to take care of a family when you lead a double life. A triple life, if, if you count family, work, and superheroing. And she might have a possibly antagonistic ex-husband who maybe wants custody. And he may get it. I think it's interesting to explore both parental situations. In terms of superheroics, no matter where they center later, she's Japanese. And I think the adventures should be set in Japan and have that Japanese feel. Giant robots, giant monsters from space or from beneath the waves, alien invasions, that kind of thing. Things that would merit her attention because she would be like an A-class power set. And to make things even more complicated for her, she becomes an instant sensation in her country. Mangas, animes, toys, she's everywhere. I mean, we know how Japan can sometimes go nuts with their fandom. And it's a play on her name and powers. So she, you know, she, she can't ever escape the spotlight. Uh, she's also a beacon of hope for her country. Nearby countries can see her shine, you know, in the sky from afar. Everyone in Japan carry sunglasses in case. So her, her <laughs> presence is transforming Japan and its culture and how people behave. And it's for the better, except her own life, which is falling apart. I was thinking of this a little bit like if Superman were Peter Parker. You know, it's like that <laughs> big, that, that respected, popular, uh, super powerful hero. But life at home is just out of control. What did you have in mind? Written by Mariko uh, Tamaki with art by Mirka Indolfo and Phil Jimenez doing variant covers because of the George Perez feel. This is my legacy book. You know, so one of the things that I tried to do when I looked at my universe is make sure that I captured some piece of the DC universe that I love. So things like a team up book. And one of the big things about DC is legacy. And so this is the great whatever daughter of Dr. Midnight. Uh, He at some point marries a Japanese person. And so she is related to Dr. Midnight. She is inspired by him. Like her, the whole family knows like, oh, your great, great, whatever uh, father was Dr. Midnight, this great hero in the thirties and forties. And she knows that he's a hero. She is inspired by this family legacy. She becomes a physician. She wants to like work on optics and cure blindness because he was blind. And of course, she's working on laser therapy to increase the receptivity of optic nerves. When the wave hits, it bathes her in this laser energy. And she has the ability to manipulate light and blast lasers and things like that. And so then she's like, okay, like, and now I have powers. I can even more 
you know, honor my family legacy by fighting crime, where my ancestor was like Dr. Midnight fought in black. I am going to be Dr. Light because I'm going to fight in the light. So midnight and light. But this is a story where it's like, you know, never meet your heroes. As she begins to like become a hero and she meets more and more people that encounter Dr. Midnight, she learns that he was like a man of the 40s. So she's only seen this polished or heard this polished version of him. But she finds out that he had all of the current political thoughts and ideas of a white male who was growing up in the 30s. And so she has a hard time reconciling some of the things that she learns about him. Like maybe he was a little bit misogynistic and maybe he was a little bit racist. He was still trying to do the right thing and he still beat up bad guys back then. But he was a man of his time. And now she's sort of a little bit conflicted. So this is like a young adult book. They'll have some social commentary on it. She'll have to decide, like, not only does she want to honor that family but redeem it. There'll definitely be a strong overlay of Asian culture in this book because he might be uh, an ancestor of hers, but the family is predominantly uh, Japanese uh, and was raised with all of that culture. He's kind of like just one generation where all of that happened. And um, I thought Mariko Tamaki would be great because she wrote Being Supergirl, which, again, was sort of like a young adult book about somebody trying to figure everything out. And just because Dr. Light 2 was created by George Perez, I thought Phil Jimenez on covers would make the most sense. But I felt like I needed legacy, and I was trying to figure out a legacy pairing in this book, and that was the best I could come up with. The best you could come up with is pretty great. I love that idea. I never thought of pairing these two together, Midnight and Light, and both are doctors, and it, it makes complete sense. I This is one of my favorites, I think. So, um, Dr. Midnight, and I'm not changing the spelling. <laughs> Are you changing the spelling? I think he's still M-I-D hyphen N-I-T-E. Are we going to have like a Dr. Midnight book that is the mirror of your Dr. Light? Is that how it works? So this is written by Howard Chaikin with Matthew Dow Smith uh, doing pages and Chaikin doing covers. Uh, it's kind of like The Shadow Meets the Nick, that Showtime series about medicine in like the turn of the century. This is a heavy pulp book. This is a book that is set in the 30s. He's a physician. He goes blind the same way. He sort of a hand grenade goes off that blinds him, but he uses his medical knowledge to try to cure his vision. He gets hit by the wave at the time that he's experimenting with different medications. As you can guess, he gets his low light vision. He gets a little bit of like enhanced strength. He's not Captain America, but he's sort of stronger than your average Joe. And so there's a very heavy film noir feeling to this. He might be a doctor, but Charles McNider, he likes dames and he likes booze and he likes brutality. He's not against beating somebody up to try to get information. He's not against going into a bar and just beating everybody up in hopes of finding somebody that has information. And he often will use his medical knowledge to some advantage in combat. So whether that's an understanding of anatomy or toxicology or physiology, he's kind of like rough and tumble. So he might be this staid sort of like, I'm a doctor and I have great bedside manner, but kind of the id comes out afterwards. And so he can kind of be a little bit sleazy and icky, which is why I think Howard Chaikin is perfect, right? right? Like he's written that period before he loves that period. He can sort of skirt that fine line. And it has to be a very dark book. It has to be very heavily inked and a lot of shadows. And I think Matthew Dow Smith's art would be perfect for this book. And so that's why you'll not only see Dr. Light discovering all of these things, you know, you'll see Dr. Midnight live these things. And so, you know, for all you know, he might be at that point when it was patriotic, use 
racial slurs against Japan during World War II, right? And she's going to have to come to grips with that. Like maybe he was pro internment camps at one point. You'll kind of see his life and then you'll see how it impacts her. And then at some point I have to have them meet in some sort of crossover, but I guess that would be years down the line. Yeah. Line order. Dr. Fade casts a time travel spell. They're both in it. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, are, did you have more of a stake in these two characters because you're a physician yourself, I wonder? I'm more of a crime doctor kind of a guy, but I do love Dr. Midnight a lot. I think he really is always presented as being such a noble guy in All-Star Squadron. And again, anytime I run into doctors, like, I, like it's hard for me to know like when I decided to become a doctor, but I can remember watching Emergency a lot on television, mm. which was about paramedics. And I can remember reading about doctors in comics that like in their secret identity, they were doctors and they were always these stand-up moral guys. So I was probably more attached to uh, Midnight than Dr. Light. I've never quite understood Dr. Light, which is why of all of the pitches that I've made here, many of which lean into prior incarnations, I think mine for her is probably the most original. Yes, probably. I mean, she was created for Crisis. You know, sometimes it's like, what what, what is this character for? And because they're tied into an event, it's like they have this non-origin story in a way. So yeah. I get it totally. Uh, I don't remember when I, uh, well, I, I, I probably remember the, the moment I didn't want to become a doctor. <laughs> it's a totally different thing because I do come from You know, my, my father is a, a medical practitioner, so there is a moment where I said, no, no, this, this isn't for me. <laughs> It was an informed thought. <laughs> you know. Uh, so my Dr. Midnight is going to be operating in the contemporary era, like I said. He's the Batman or Daredevil of my line, operating out of a contextualizing city. The entry says is unidentified, but I like Opal City for this. It's a retro place. Just like his costume, which I don't want to change, even though I've brought him forward. I don't really want to change much of anything, actually. Blind doctor who can see in the darkness, uses it to catch bad guys unaware, gritty street-level stuff, the owl, because owls are cool, medical subplots. The entry is uh, drawn by Matt Wagner here, so I'm proposing he write and draw the series more or less with the same take he did uh, as uh, the Dr. Midnight miniseries he wrote, just not with a legacy hero. Like, that wasn't Charles McKnighter or somebody else. Let's say it is McKnighter. And in that mini, uh, he had his Midnight go up against the terrible trio, which were like old Batman villains from the 50s. And I think the Charles McKnighter series set in the retro Opal should in fact be filled with old, disused characters no one thinks are viable anymore. Guys like like the Terrible Trio, like Kite Man, like The Clock, who was a Robin villain. There's a really deep bench at DC, you know, especially if we're going to look at 40s, 50s villains that never made a comeback or made very few appearances. That's what I want to do with Dr. Midnight. It's kind of my star man, but it's more classic superhero street-level stuff. Yeah, Wagner's perfect. That's a great pick for a creator for Dr. Midnight. Yeah, you had a Wagner book as well. Uh, and you had a Brubaker book. Here's mine. Mm. <laughs> Maybe we were reading the same book. <laughs> mine is Dr. Occult. I want to think of this as a supernatural noir, which immediately brings to mind someone like Ed Brubaker. So put Brubaker and Sean Phillips, that kind of collaboration on here. Dr. Occult, ghost detective, investigating the strange and unusual. He's the private eye you go to when something can't be explained scientifically. His gal Friday, in a sense, is Rose Psychic who I envision as a kind of Madame Xanadu character. But I want to use the Vertigo twist, wherein she and a cult are the same person, sharing an existence. You don't realize it at first, 
but their scenes together are in their mind. No one else ever sees mm -hmm. them together. They don't know what the other's been up to when they regain control. And maybe at first, they don't even know that that's what's going on themselves. They just wake up in strange places, basically. So the forward pitch is Magic Hardboiled Fight Club. Nice. <laughs> All right, mine is called The Ghost Detectives. I like it. Written by uh, Corinne Bechko and Gabriel Hardman, who are husband and wife, uh, with variant covers by Bill Sienkiewicz. And, and the elevator pitch is The Thin Man Meets Lady Hawk. And so Dr. Occult is like a mystic in the 40s. He's a believer in magic. He has his magic symbol, which he says helps him reveal truths, but might just be a prop. He often crosses paths with Rose Psychic, who works in the same town, and she's a debunker of the mystic. She's like Houdini, feeling that all of these things are fake, and she needs to prove that they're fake. And so they're constantly running into each other, almost as rivals, him saying that it's real and her saying that they're not real. There's definitely sexual tension and chemistry between them. They're at a seance when, of course, the wave hits, the veil of, go of the ghostly realm is ripped apart, um, and the two somehow become fused. They're holding hands in the seance. Everybody else lets go. They're still holding hands. They become one being. And so when one is on the physical plane, the other is in the astral plane. Think like Rick Jones and Captain Marvel sure. back in the day. The switches can be brought on by them. So it's not day, night or anything like that. They can say, like, I need Rose's you know, capability, so I will become the ghost and she will uh, become physical. And when they switch – they have five minutes of overlap where like one is slowly dissipating and one is becoming more solid. And so they're able to interact with each other briefly, but it's really like brief, five minutes. And so these are mysteries that involve magic that they investigate. And sometimes they're real mystic threats, but sometimes they're just ruses like Scooby-Doo. And so either way, they bring their own skills to the table to try to solve things. So there's also like mystery, sort of like Sandman Mystery Theater. You have to figure out, is this a real ghostly incursion or not? And then, of course, there's this whole Nick and Nora or moonlighting sensibility that, you know, they can only be together for five minutes, you know. Will they or won't they? I think one of the big draws here has got to be like fast-paced, witty dialogue like The Thin Man. That kind of makes them very, very charming. And so that's my pitch, The Ghost of Detectives. It's, it's very close to mine, really. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like we could merge them. This is the end of the book. So what is your bonus book? Who did you pick yeah. to have their own series in here? Yeah, I have to say, this was the easiest book for me to crack, okay. uh, was the villain book. I'm picking Dark Opal. Okay. I'm a big fan of Amethyst. This is James Tinian IV. I don't know if you're reading Justice League Dark these days, but he's got a great sense of history, or he had a great sense of, of magical history when he was writing that book. There are a lot of homages to Alan Moore books and things like that. And then there's a rotating cast of artists, people that are known for sort of sword and sorcery stuff. Becky Cloonan, Aaron Lopresti, you know, Amy Reeder. Covers would be by David Mack. And it's really a jam fest of all of the sword and sorcery books that I wish were more successful than they were. So the story is... This is probably one of the only books where the wave has nothing to do with anything. This is like a world like Samaria uh, in Conan, whether it's Earth or not, who cares? He's an evil warlord, Dark Opal. He's a wizard. He lives in this land of sword and sorcery. He has been repelled by his ancient enemy, Lord Amethyst. 
And so now he's going on a quest where he feels that he can bring together certain artifacts or other things of magic power to sort of gain the ultimate power. You know, think of him trying to get the Infinity Gems, for example. And in his effort to gain this power, he has to travel the world and he's always defied by a local hero wherever he enters. So think of the characters like Iron Wolf, Stalker, Claw the Unconquered, that female warrior Starfire, even Princess Amethyst, all try to stop him from getting what he needs to get. And sometimes they're successful and sometimes they're not. And he's not even sure of like all of the things he needs to get. He just knows that he can put together something that will help him like rule the world. And so Arcs will be there to introduce these new uh, characters into this separate, almost pocket universe of sword and sorcery books. And then in the end, there is going to be, of course, one dramatic final arc where all of these heroes team up to take him on whenever he finally acquires what he needs to get. All of those books that I love, all of those books that I reviewed on Diablo Frank's Bloodlines blog, like I can't get enough of Stalker and it was only four issues, I get to bring them all back here and fight Opal, Dark Opal, who comes from a book that I love. Great stuff. I love the idea that you could bring back all these different characters, Beowulf and Dragon Sword and Nightmaster. I'm just naming others. Yeah. <laughs> okay, mine was I wanted another team book. And I took my cue from the 5YL Legion where the Dark Circle was an official religion or at least a cult. I'm proposing this as a secret society of beings who are superhuman or superhuman adjacent, working towards the betterment of mankind. Though, you know, there may be members who are in it to consolidate their own power and will turn out to be villains. So it's a non-team, like the original Defenders. I guess a more modern touchstone would be uh, Marvel's Illuminati heroes, Reed Richards, Tony Stark, Dark Wendy, you know, that stuff. Secret handshakes, ceremonies, missions given to them by a secret leader whose identity is an unfolding mystery in the series. Love the Secret Six kind of element. Mm. Of the heroes who have their own books, who are members, Dr. Midnight and Jason Blood are likely suspects. Rose Psychic, but not Dr. Occult. He knows nothing about this. And then I would poach the rest of the cast from this very issue, which would put a target on a lot of them because readers would remember them being villains in another continuity. Are they still? Is the question. Astronaut Martin Champion, by way of the Dark Destroyer entry. Balkan Royal Dark Opal. Deadshot, of course. Popular. Dabbler in the Mystic Arts. Deimos. Chinese scientist Dr. Cyber. I think Dr. Phosphorus would be a cool visual. There are ways to, to bring a lot of these characters in. They all appear to be working for the side of good, but some might not be. So think of this as a Justice League Task Force, Suicide Squad, Checkmate kind of book with a Secret Six Leviathan mystery and a hidden history at its center. The kind of stuff I, Jonathan Hickman was writing with S.H.I.E.L.D. and Hydra and Secret Warriors, you know, that kind of, yeah, yeah that kind of book. So that's my bonus. And that brings us to the part of the show where we only have enough money to buy one book, one comic, one series from the other person's line. <laughs> Is there a book from my line that you desperately need? When you told me that this was one of the things that we did, I said I was going to circle five titles that you did that would be like the five that I would have to decide mm -hmm. from. So just so you know, I circled Dawnstar, Deadman, Demonia, Dr. Light, and Dr. Midnight. 
And I got to tell you, I'm really torn between like the goofball, Demonia, Harley Quinn style, see or beat up Omega Men people, or that Dr. Light book, which I thought was really fascinating. And I think I'm going to end up saying Dr. Light. Oh, wow. Yeah, I just love the idea of her being like a huge celebrity uh, as part of the whole gig, but struggling. And of course, the whole thing about kids and all that sort of jazz. I thought that that was a well thought out concept. That would be the one that I get. Well, I mean, in the books that you put out obviously i have like this obsession with dial h so i would have to get that series and i've also said that i would read anything grant morrison wrote so detective chimp was on the list but let's say i don't have those proclivities let's say let's say i'm a sane person then what would i read and i also circled your dr light series Huh. as one of the more interesting... Like, obviously, you'd get more out of it if you also read Dr. Midnight, which I can't because I don't have the money. Yeah. <laughs> What interested me was the idea that she was the, the legacy hero and the, the sort of legacy that you brought to it, I thought was one of the more interesting pitches. But, I mean, for real, it would be Dial H. <laughs> 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 I just can't help myself. It's uh, I'm not sane. Yeah, and it's funny because, as I said, that was the hardest one for me. I was like really trying to rack my brain to come up with something. So the fact that you didn't loathe it <laughs> it makes me feel happy. It makes me feel very happy. I feel it's like the second time I've done this. It was like, last time it was like the Creeper. Ryan was saying how he hated the Creeper and he couldn't even make it interesting for himself. And that's the book I thought was most interesting from his list. <laughs> so uh, you never know is the thing. Who's your audience, you know? Yeah. Okay, well, dear listeners, it's time for you to go to fireandwaterpodcast.com. Tell us what you think. Would you read any of these books? If you were in charge, what series would you offer using these characters? And if you like this content, think about visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. I hope you had fun, Ange. Oh, I had so, so much fun. And, and it's funny, I was uh, I was talking to a friend about this and they said, that sounds like a lot of work. It is. And I was like, I was like, it is, but it's such a wonderful diversion to everything else that is happening that I relished it. I had so much fun doing this. That's great. I, I'm really happy you decided to try the experiment. So until next time, who's editing? We, We are. We had the Uh, the female Dr. Fate and all that. By the way, I think you owe me an apology, because I read your Dr. Fate ongoing, and I blubbered like a baby in that thing several times. It was an emotional roller coaster for me in my you know late teen years, so because of my man tears, I, I feel like you, uh, you owe me an apology. I will publicly not apologize. I think it's one of the best things I've ever done.